You're listening to the Citizens Church Podcast, a resource from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Well, guys, there was a popular meme in the past five years. Uh, and this meme was, get you a man who can do both. And it started with this man, Drake. We got him in a suit looking dapper and also looking good in street clothes. You can do both. He can do the high class event and the everyday. And then it kind of went wild on the internet and different fandoms put their own versions. This is a favorite of mine. Get you a man who can do both. (laughs) Top salesman at Dunder Mifflin, humble beat farmer. (laughs) Both hands. Get you a man who can do both. And it wasn't just the men. The women get in on it too. Got Judge Judy (laughs) dropping the gavel and going out on the town. Get you a woman that can do both. And we hit these memes today because scripture highlights we have a King David who can do both. He is the great conqueror of the Old Testament. He is the man with a sword. He's the man dropping giants. And he's also a man full of compassion for the weak. And these chapters actually show us that he can do both. And it's important that we really dig into David. Because people rush to his fall. And we're going to do that. We're going to go there the next two weeks. But you need to remember why people loved David. Why did people call Jesus David's son? Why was he such a memorable, most famous king in all of Israel? What was so great about him when he was actually ruling? And these chapters kind of bring that out to us. See, David's at the peak of his powers. He's finally king. He's brought the ark home to Jerusalem. God's affirmed all the promises of Israel are going to come through him and new promises that one day one of his descendants is going to be the eternal king and bring a kingdom that will never end. And that is Jesus. So this man has all the promises, all the momentum in the world. And what's he do with it? Well, he steps out on faith and he fulfills the promises to conquer the promised land to give Israel their rest from their enemies. And it might not look like much to us, but look at Samuel 8. It says this, verse 1, After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. Well, they lived to the east. Verse 2, he defeated Moab. or They lived to the west, defeated Moab. They lived to the east. Verse 3, David defeated Hadazer and the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. They lived in the north. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help King Hadazer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Assyrians. They also live in the north. In verse 13, David struck down 18,000 Edomites in the valley of salt, was to the south. And we can read all those names and be like, good, good, good. God just couldn't stop winning. The guy's on a hot streak in Vegas. He is just the king you want to follow. But Israel saw this map because this was their life. The little purple area was before David's in charge. And after, to the east, to the west, to the south, to the north, the guy can't stop winning in a way that everyone knew God was with him. It wasn't because he was perfect with a sling or a sword. It was because God had empowered his king to believe by faith, to live the promises he said, to give Israel a spot, to give them this land to dwell in peace and worship God. And verse 15 sums it up like this. It says, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And the victories kind of prove that this is God's man. This is God's plan. But we learned that 
David wasn't alone in all this. He wasn't just some single soldier. That happened once with Goliath. But he actually was doing these great victories with all these mighty men. He was doing these deeds with these people who were his comrades in arms, his friends, and their stories start to weave in through 2 Samuel. And among the thousands fighting and dying during this time, Scripture remembers about 40 or so of these men by name from their hometown to remembered forever along with Israel's glory days. They too lived and died by faith and fought with David. And I want you to look at their deeds with me and some of their names just to see these were real people. And these are some of the type, top mighty men who fought with David from 2 Samuel 23. Check this out. First, we got Joseph Bashibeth, a tech Kemalite. Extra points in the back. Abby, mark them. Mark them down. Thank you. He wielded a spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. In a similar feat, I want to report, my wife bought me an electric tennis racket and I killed eight flies on the porch in a row because this is Alabama. You tell me what's more impressive. Mighty man, mighty man. Next guy, Eleazar, check him out. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. The men of Israel withdrew. Everyone else said, we're going to lose. We're out of here. Not Eleazar. He rose, struck down the Philistines with his hand until he was weary, and the hand clung to the sword, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. It's not just God using David as some mythical Marvel hero. He's using all of these people to do great things. And we have historical accounts of this happening. The battles went so long that the muscles would not unclench a warrior's hand from all the adrenaline of literally fighting to the death for hours or blood getting so thick on their arms it became a cast and hardened and had to be put under buckets of water to finally unclench their sword. Yes, historical reliability into the grotesque, but it's interesting. The third person is this, Shama. And Shama, the Philistines gathered at Leah, and there was a plot of ground full of lentils. That's called fancy beans. And the, and the men fled the Philistines again. People were running away again. But he took a stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines and the Lord worked a great victory. God is moving so powerfully, even the beans are getting protection in Israel. No kidney beans left behind. Israel is the promised land. And check out Benaiah. He was a valiant man, doer great deeds. He struck down two Ariels, heroes of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when it had snow, snow had fallen. He struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff, snatched his spear out of his hand, flipped it behind his back, and killed him with his own spear. These dudes were doing awesome, historically great things. David wasn't alone. And you see David's life story and arc. He made this great friendship with Jonathan, the son of the King Saul. And one friendship turned into a ton of friendships with others. And instead of a singular hero, you see an entire groups, dozens and dozens of people being blessed through David's faithfulness spreading throughout Israel. 
They're winning so much, they're doing side missions like defending beans and fighting lions. They are rolling. And it's easy to miss this part, that some of these men were the same men who started with David when he was on the run and an outlaw in a cave. It wasn't David like went and picked out the strongest guys he could find. These were the same people that were running from the law too, or cast out of their families or owed big debts, have now found transformation and redemption and now living God's purpose with their life. And isn't that just what God does? He takes all the times we're filled with shame and feel like we have nothing to offer and feel like we want to go hide in a cave. And God brings us out, makes us new, and gives us a purpose with our life. And that's what God's trying to show off here. It's not just David. It's a whole people. And godly leadership does that. Godly leadership helps others find renewal in God and find their place in God's kingdom. Ego-driven leaders make clones of themselves. But godly leaders want you to be you following Jesus. They want you to learn what God has made you to be and support you to be that following Jesus, not trying to be like anybody else. Do we need godly examples? Absolutely. But we just don't need clones. Leaders who lead with love and honor and respect create healthy teams where everyone can grow and everyone can step into their purpose. And there's a story from 2 Samuel 23 that highlights this. It's in verse 13. And it says, the, chief, the three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David in the cave at Adalim, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in the stronghold. By the stronghold, we just clarified, is a cave. So don't, don't think too fancy. He's, he's in the cave. And the garrison of the Philistines, they built a little fort, was at Bethlehem. Remember Bethlehem? That's David's hometown. And no one's cooking is better than mom's cooking, right? Look what David says. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. The man wants his hometown water. There's no water in Israel apparently as good as the well at Bethlehem from when he was a boy. So David hiding in the cave is lamenting. Someone, if I could just have the water. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, carried and brought it back to David. Now, when you think about it, you're like, okay, well, what's that even mean? Well, Bethlehem's a strong 12 to 13 miles away from this cave. So these men ran a half marathon, didn't sneak up, says so they just broke through, killed everyone in their path to get the water, dominated them so much that they could pull water out of a well, and then casually ran the next half marathon back to David. And we see David immediately sees this feat of strength and honor, and he surprises them by what he does. They're trying to honor David, verse 16. But he would not drink of it. He gets the water back. He's like, what? What'd y'all do? He poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of men who went to risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things, the three mighty men 
did. These men had risked their lives for a cup of water, so David recognized a blood price has been paid for this water. And he recognizes quickly, no one should have that level of devotion to a man. No one should be willing to risk their life for a cup of water for a man. And he receives the great honor these men have done to him to care about him and want to obey and, and that level of leadership. But he turns it around and honors them and says, we're going to pour this out to the Lord because I value your life more than your service to me. That David actually loves these guys back. It's not hero worship. He turns around and says, I care about you. Don't risk your life for things like that for me. When you are in a place where love, honor, and respect are freely being shared, it tends to come back to you. That's how a healthy system of people work together. And it shows what Romans 12.10 tells all Christians to do. This is it lived out. It says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Sometimes we wonder, how do I change my workplace? What if you tried outdoing one another and showing honor, whether people deserve it or not, whether you think they deserve it or not? What if you showed up and were the most honoring coworker to people above you, beside you, and below you on the little org chart? How would that change your home, your roommate life, your extended family life, your friends, where there isn't a pecking order like a group of chickens in my backyard, but instead you treated people with honor, period? Do you think that would change the environment that you're around? Do you think that would blow people's mind that you are more concerned about honoring them than yourself in every situation? Because it seems to have done something wonderful among these men who are once outlaws. When you start taking people seriously to be loved and honored, people tend to feel safe and start to grow. If you want to see a beautiful thing happen by God through your life, love and honor those around you. That's a great start. And it's a question for your, for your leadership. And I know a lot of us don't see ourselves as leaders. They see this person's a leader and my boss is a leader and you know, Pastor John's a leader or maybe my community group leader's a leader. And those are all leaders. But everyone leads someone. Even if you're just leading one person, you lead someone. And so it's a careful question to lay before the Lord for your leadership. Do you accomplish the goal? Whatever your relationship has goals, do you accomplish the goal in a way that makes everyone better? Do you accomplish the goal in a way that makes everyone better? Because leadership isn't about personal greatness. Leadership is about bringing out the best in every member of the team towards the goal. Have you ever had leadership like that in your life? Where you felt that loved and valued to contribute, to actually achieve something great together, not on just the accolades of a few? It's a beautiful thing that God lays out before us. When we love and honor people, it tends to bring out the very best in people and bring out things they didn't even know they had to give. That's what we're going for here at Citizens. That's what every Christian should be going for in every sphere of their life that they're a part of. And remember, David is but a ghost compared to the love and respect that Jesus and his disciples show, that Jesus shows his disciples and shows us. 
Jesus washes the dirty feet of men who kind of like got it wrong a fair amount. Jesus is patient and kind, speaking truthfully and respectfully, even when they're confused and bickering and boastful and can't stay awake to pray. Which leads us to a serious thing to consider. How can God use us to do this? And I want you to be encouraged. That means you can start affecting people's lives positively even after church. Monday, you don't have to wait to find the right people. The people God has placed in your path are the people ripe to be honored by you. That's where God is already working and wants to work powerfully in your life. David's love didn't start when he felt find the right people to honor. They came to him in a cave. He found them. They were just the guys around. But David's love wasn't just for the strong but also the weak. In 2 Samuel 9, it shows his compassion. Look at verse three with me. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Likely 15 years has passed since King Saul's death. And Ziba was a high-level servant to this former king, Saul. And David remembers his promise to Jonathan, Saul's son, and David's best friend. See, Jonathan had given up his claim to the throne at the risk of his own life to throw his life towards David, to honor David, to love David, no matter what. And they made this promise between these men, 1 Samuel 20. It says, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan asked David for a steadfast love that wouldn't quit. Now, Jonathan died with his father Saul in battle. And so Jonathan had also asked, don't cut off the hesed. That's the steadfast love in Hebrew. It means the loving kindness of God, the steadfast love of God, the mercy and kindness faithfully mingling from God to you. David, don't cut that off from my house. Will you promise it forevermore? And David said, yes. And so now a full 20 years later, David asked, is there anyone left of Saul's house to show this hesed love that he had promised? And Ziba tells him about the single son but he doesn't mention his name. He just mentions that he's disabled. And I think Ziba doesn't give a name because he expects David to dismiss him because he's disabled altogether and say, ah, oh, well, I guess there's no one then. We must remember the ancient world was much more cruel to the disabled than our current one. And they did this for two reasons in the ancient world. It was a society where physical labor was an absolute must to get through life. There's no technology, there's no mechanics. And so physical labor was highly valued and anyone with a physical handicap was presented with serious limitations to daily life and work. Doesn't make it right, their views, but that's why they thought that. And the second reason is even darker. We see many in ancient Israel believe that any handicap was a sign of a person's personal evil or maybe family sin. Jesus undoes this and changes that understanding in John 9. But even the disciples are familiar with that teaching and understanding and have to be corrected by the Lord. 
But King David doesn't care. He presses Ziba and says, well, where is he? Where's he from? What's going on with him? Ziba tells him he's staying in Lodabar, which means nothing to us, but in Hebrew, Lodabar means nowhere. Mephibosheth, he lives in a nothing place. He lives in a wasteland. He lives in a place no one should live or want to live. It's confirming what we probably suspect of Ziba. He's a nobody. Pick me if you're going to honor someone, not him. His name is Mephibosheth. And even his name means mouth of shame. And we see at Mephibosheth's absolute lowest, no grandfather, no dad, living in nowhere, where even his grandfather's former servants look down on him. Verse 6, David, King David calls him forward. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. Notice it doesn't say King David. He just talks to him as David here. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul. Saul was the king of Israel for many years. It's a lot of land. Saul of your father, his grandfather, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth is his absolute most broken to think of him self like a dead dog off the highway. When he showed up to meet King David, probably for the first time in his life, he's rightly terrified. New kings in that time period and even bad biblical kings would wipe out all the other ancestors who have a right to the throne. He thinks this is his execution. Has finally found him in nowhere. Time to put him out of this life. Mephibosheth has nothing to offer King David but himself. And David doesn't ask for a single thing from him. Yet David gives him peace. He gives him financial security for him and his house forevermore. He brings him home to Jerusalem, out of Lodabar, into the center of Israel's life. A prince that lived in rags is suddenly going to eat at the king's table for all of his days. And this man, racked with shame, becomes a son to David in a moment. He's treated like one of David's own sons to eat every day at the table for the rest of his days. In our culture, like their culture, to eat together is to be friends. To eat every single day together is to be family. And that's what David offers Mephibosheth because he is determined to show the kindness of God to him. Hesed love is the kind of love that moves enemies to family, outcasts to insiders, and something we would call the grace of God. To Mephibosheth's credit, 
he humbly accepts this offer because you see he could have blamed David for his life. Mephibosheth wasn't born handicapped. 2 Samuel 4.4 says this, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old. When the news about Saul, his grandfather, and Jonathan, his dad, came from Jezreel, that news would be they were both killed in battle. And his nurse took him and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. They were fleeing because they didn't know what would happen in the power transition after King Saul. They didn't have modern medicine to reset bones and rehabilitation. So this is a lifelong injury from fleeing the palace. Would have been awfully easy for Mephibosheth to be bitter. Bitter at dad's death. Bitter at losing any right to the throne for David's from a whole different family line. Bitter at David coming to power in any way, jealous of David. But instead, Mephibosheth embraces the love and chooses the king's kindness over his personal bitterness. What a word to you and I today. What would it be like to take off the boxing gloves with God and just accept his kindness that he actually loves you and died on a cross for you? instead of trying to negotiate and argue everything bad that's ever happened in your life. And instead look to God's son who died for you. And when we see the steadfast nature of David's compassion, it's a love without needing anything in return. Because 2 Samuel's careful, Mephibosheth's story doesn't even end here. There come two more situations that just kind of arise where David could have cut Mephibosheth off. He could have rescinded the order, could have pulled him from the table. In both of these situations, David instead listens to him, works with him, and eventually honors his promise of Hesed, steadfast love for the rest of his life. David is just a fraction of Jesus' church. It's easy to read this story wrong, though. Everybody wants to be David, but we must realize we're not David in this story. We are Mephibosheth. We don't have anything to offer a God who has everything. We have broken souls that need real healing. We're the ones who've been in Lodabar, locked out of Eden. Eden away from the king for too long. We're the ones who struggle with shame. But Jesus calls us to the table and he wipes the shame off our face like dirt on a napkin and says, sit right here with me forevermore. The invitation of the gospel is to become a part of the family of God, both now and forevermore no longer how long you've wandered in Lodabar. Church, God's mercy is not for someone else. It's for you.
The more you delight in God's gospel of mercy, the more you'll find yourself a merciful person. It's easy to pity people and serve them self-righteously because I have a lot and you have a little, I'm just going to help you out, which makes us feel awfully good. A much better way is the gospel to see ourselves as pitiful, receive God's mercy freely and serve everyone as a fellow recipient of the same mercy of God. See, David models the way painfully here too. Because David points us to Jesus, but David needs Jesus too. David in these very chapters of 2 Samuel is conquering by faith, but he too will be defeated by sin. The very story of the mighty men ends in this horrific, tragic note. If we go back to 2 Samuel 23, 35, he's listing out all the mighty men, making sure everyone gets the credit. Look how the list just kind of shakes out. Hezero of Carmel, Parai the Arabite, Egal the son of Nathan of Zoab, Bani the Gadite, Zelek the Ammonite, Nahare the bear of Baroth, the armor bearer of Joab, the son of Zerui, Ira the Ithrite, Gareb the Ithrit, and Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. And if you're new to Christianity or new to reading the Bible, Leaving Uriah as the very last mighty man is no mistake by the author. Uriah is the husband of Bathsheba. David, within a chapters, will betray Uriah unto his death and break his marriage covenant with his wife. And the author wants us to see it and let it stick with us. See, the Bible is painfully truthful about the shortcomings of every leader. It's one really good reason to believe the reliability of the Bible because the characters don't come off awesome. They come off as human. They come off as people who need Jesus. And it makes one man stand out an awful lot of a sinless Jesus who dies for David's and us in Mephibosheth's and Saul's and Uriah's and Bathsheba's and everybody else. David isn't Jesus. David points us to Jesus and David's life shows us he needs Jesus too. Because see, the true King Jesus never lies and never betrays, but rather is betrayed by one of his friends. Betrayed at a table on the eve before his death. Jesus is the true king who brings compassion to a hurting world. Just look at the gospels if you wonder if God cares about this world. Jesus, who will return one day, will conquer all evil and bring righteousness and justice for all people. He's the compassionate conqueror we need. When Jesus dies on the cross, the great battle for our souls, he brought compassion to us. And by God's hesed love, we have a seat at the table for forevermore. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.